Thank you, Howard. Good morning. We do not have a power cord for the computer. We do not know how long the battery is good. So we think we make it through the class, but we could get out early today. Because if the computer goes, I quit. Um, Y'all come on in, uh, get a lesson if you need one. If you want to raise your hand, uh, if you need a lesson, raise your hand. And, and uh, uh, down here, Ron Hickman's hands up, Mary Nell's hands up. Um, thank you. Um, <clears throat> a lot of you came up to me and said, we've been praying for you. Uh, of course, Carol Lay's handing out these lessons. Her husband, Danny, comes up to me and says, I'm not praying that you win. I thought, well, why are you wasting your breath? And uh, <laughs> he said, just, no, I, I don't ask you to pray that we win. Uh, I just ask you to pray that, that justice uh, uh, will take care and God will take care of what's going on. But I've got uh, special friends here today, Rick and Kirsten Meadow with uh, Ruby from Nashville. Rick and Kirsten live in New York. Rick's daughter, Ruby, lives in Nashville. And Rick is, is getting to spend his vacation time with his daughter this summer down here in trial with me. Uh, <laughs> Bless his heart, and, and poor Ruby. But uh, uh, anyway, if you all get a chance to meet Rick and Kirsten, if you have not, they're wonderful people and very dear friends that I'm fortunate. Rick runs my New York office, and actually Kirsten runs my New York office, but Rick, we pretend he runs it. And uh, 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 it's nice to have them down here, and uh, very gracious of them to come uh, out here um, today. Oh my goodness. I thought we're really ending early. <laughs> Howard, we need to do more prayer. <laughs> um, um, those of you who've come up to me said you're following the trial in the newspapers. It's real nice of you. We had a wonderful time on Friday. Uh, the bad guys called their first witness to the stand Thursday afternoon. And bless his heart, he had memory failure. Um, it seems he decided he was going to testify about some things that were kind of lies and um, contrary to the truth so my first question of him I had I had just a really good time as I told my crew on Friday I said days like today you just feel like we need to discount for the client and not really charge for it because this is just fun and uh, this guy he just he's just like all over the map he's saying whatever he needs to say to win okay without regard whether it's true or not so I have this we call it the double wide this huge tablet that's just it's big, it's a double wide tablet. And I had this honking thick black marks a lot. And my first question of the guy, I walk up to him and stand right between him and the jury and here he is in the witness chair and here's the jury and here's my big tablet and the judge is over there and the bad guys are back over there. And I walked up to him and I looked at him and I looked at the jury and I picked up my marks a lot and I said, sir, I only have one area that I'm going to talk to you about. And I get on the tablet and I write in letters. As one article in the, the local newspaper wrote, uh, I wrote it big enough you could read it across the street. <laughs> I took this big old marker, I said, one area, and I wrote a huge T. I look back at him. R. I look back at him. U. I look back at him. T. H. Truth. 
I said, that's all I want to talk to you about is the truth. Don't you figure it's time you started telling it? <laughs> and it just kind of went downhill for him from there. Because bless his heart, his memory that he was telling the jury about was exactly 180 degrees opposite of what he'd written in all these nice little papers eight years ago that I was able to put on the screen and say, well, Shazam, you're telling something totally different than what you wrote. And uh, it was fun. So if you're keeping up with that, um, you know, we're, we're, in, we're in war. We're in battle, and we're having a good time. And I thank you for your encouragement and support. And uh, Mark keeps us supplied with cookies. He's brought a fresh set, and I'm a happy guy. Okay, prison epistles. <clears throat> when Paul was in Rome, 59 to 61, he's under house arrest. And house arrest means he gets to live in a rented home, but uh, he's still chained and he's guarded by Caesar's guard while his appeal is waiting to be heard from Caesar. So in the years 59 to 61, while he's in this state, he writes letters, or as we call them, epistles, to certain churches. We've got four of them that we know about now. We call them his prison epistles because he writes them while he's in prison. Philippians, which was to the church in Philippi, northern Greece, Macedonia. We covered that last week. Ephesians, which in our Bibles is before Philippians. That's why we did the little. See the way we did that? See? It's a gift. And Ephesians, <laughs> Ephesians is what we're going to start this week, but we won't make it through. That's the letter to the church at Ephesus, okay, which is a town on the coast of Turkey. Then there's Colossians, which is to the church at Colossae. And then there's Philemon, which is written to a fella named Philemon. So these are the four prison epistles that we're working through. Today we're going to look at Ephesians, but I've divided the lesson into two weeks. And so we'll also do Ephesians next week. We just do the first half of it this week. Um, Paul is uh, the author of uh, Ephesians, but some scholars say they're not really sure Paul wrote it. Early church ascribes it to Paul. History ascribes it to Paul. It claims within itself to be a letter from Paul. But it's missing personal notes, which we normally get in Paul's writings. If you go to most of Paul's letters, like if I was going to write a letter to, to the class, you know, I might point out, hey, be sure and tell Sandy that I'm praying for her to get a new job that's an even better job. Or I might, you know, say, hey, be sure and tell Howard that he's starting put on some weight and he needs to work out more. Or be sure and, you know, you might have, uh, you know, some of these, <laughs> I can't wait till the day I get to say that to Howard. <laughs> and it will come. He may be 120, but one day he will have an ounce of body fat and I'm going to point it out. Um, <clears throat> these kind of personal notes are not in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And so some scholars say that makes us think Paul didn't write it. I frankly still think he wrote it, but you, I, I, and, and, and I think most church history agrees he wrote it because the teaching is Paul, the vocabulary is Paul. It's just a classic Paul letter. So what I think might help us in this regard is if we go back to our NASA weather satellite photo of the Mediterranean Sea, Paul's over here in Rome in prison. This is Greece. Ephesus is right over here on the coast of what's now Turkey. Okay, But Ephesus itself, when Paul spent his year and a half in Ephesus, he really spent that time in churches all around this area of Turkey. And so when Paul writes this letter, the odds are quite good he's not just writing it for Ephesus, but he's writing it for the whole region. 
Ephesus, and this is a letter to be passed around to other churches. Ephesus is a huge town. The ruins today are still huge. If you ever get a chance to go, this is the main road in Ephesus, which uh, uh, is, is uh, excavated pretty well. You can, in fact, we've had the, a wonderful opportunity to see it. You can see the ruts in the road from the chariots. That, that just wore ruts into the road as you go down the road. That's a library. It's got a huge amphitheater over here. Originally, back up here at the top of the picture was the harbor, but the harbor has silted in and moved so that now Ephesus is about seven or eight miles inland. But it was a huge, huge town. It was by far the biggest town. The church would have been huge as well. So when I think about Paul and it missing personal notes, I think about two possible reasons, and there could be more. First, it's what is called a circular letter. It's a letter for churches in the area, not just that church. And then second, it's a large church. And you got to be real careful making personal notes in a large church because just as sure as you do it, you're going to forget people or people are going to get their feelings hurt because, well, he mentioned, you know, Howard, but he didn't mention Lewis. Or, you know, we mentioned one of the Butler boys, but not the other one. Or you mentioned, you know, you here have divided up. Those who like to be mentioned sit up at the front because I see you and use you as examples. Those who don't, you sit in the back. I can't see you, and that's fine. You get anonymity. So, you know, it, it, it works, you know, here. But you got to be real careful when you're writing a letter like that to a large church because you're going to leave some people out. Now, the letter itself has some natural divisions. It, like a lot of Paul's writings, the first half is very um, head knowledge. It's like doctrine, it's theology, it's, uh, it's about God and Christ and this kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's intellectually uh, uh, centered on teaching. The second half of the letter is very practical. It's here's what you ought to be doing and here's what you shouldn't be doing. And so what we're going to do is divide that letter in half, and we're going to deal with the doctrine and the theological, the first half, the first three chapters today, God willing. And then next week, we'll deal with the next three chapters, the practical stuff. Um, now, this is a letter. We've got to remember it's a letter. And if we write a letter today, if you get a letter from me or, or someone in my law firm, it's going to have our letterhead at the top. It's going to say, Dear... You know, John or Susie or whatever, whoever you are, and it'll have the date and it'll say, you know, dear so and so. And then at the bottom, uh, as I've told you before, I generally put my work letters very truly yours. I had a wonderful girl from Korea who was working with us as a, a receptionist uh, for a while. She wanted to become a legal secretary. And so she just begged and begged. Uh, for one of my secretaries to give her a dictation tape so that she could type it and show how she was good. And she typed some great letters for me. I finally proofread one of them, which I don't generally do because I, I just trust the secretaries can proofread better than I can. It's not one of my gifts. But I noticed at the bottom where I was about to sign my name, it said, virtually yours. <laughs> virtually yours. And I handed it back to my secretary and said, you know, this is not right. And my secretary went back to this wonderful little girl who had been typing it. And she said, oh, no, it's right. That's what Mr. Lanier said. Listen to the tape. And I had said, very truly yours. But I guess in the tape, it kind of sounded more like very truly yours or something. I don't know. 
So, but this letter from Paul had typical breakdowns just like any letter's going to. And we lose that when we read it in our Bible because it's Holy Scripture and it looks like it's a book in the Bible like every other book. And it is a book in the Bible for us. But we got to remember when it was originally written, it's a letter. And so it's a letter that starts out with who wrote it? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul was not an apostle of Christ Jesus because he chose to be one. First and foremost, Paul was not an apostle of Christ Jesus because he inherited the title. Paul was a messenger or an apostle of Christ Jesus because God chose him to be one. And that's the way Paul saw it. So Paul, and he's writing to the saints in Ephesus. Those are the faithful in Christ Jesus. And those are the people who are the recipients of the letter. And then a good Greek letter back then would not only have first who it's from and second who it's to, but it would have a greeting. Our greetings today are generally, dear so-and-so, dear Gary, or dear Sterling. Um, now that's changing some with emails. Emails are actually changing and the internet's changing some of the ways we write letters. And so it's a little less formal. And now, you know, if I get a, an email from Lewis, it doesn't say, dear Mark. It generally says things that are embarrassing to repeat, but he's got little funny lines he puts up at the front of his, you know, thinking that it's funny. And, uh, uh, and I'm sure he's laughing when he does it, so it's just a question of who it's funny to. Um, but uh, it's okay because I do it back to him. Um, uh, uh, Paul does this at the start of his letter. But a Greek letter... If you're a good Greek student or a good Greek writer, your letter usually would start with grace. Grace to you. You're wishing someone grace. A good Jewish letter would start with shalom, peace. Okay? Paul has got both worlds going on here. So Paul combines the two. And Paul's letter starts out with the Greek grace and the Jewish shalom, peace. And he says grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to remember that Paul's writing to an audience that has got a, a, a mix of Jewish Christians as well as Gentile Christians. Okay, So when Paul writes, he writes understanding this mix as he does it. He begins his letter with a praise to God. Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, um, I'm going to bore us for just a moment. And I've got like Ruby here this morning, and Philip's got Allie here, and you, there she is, she's waving. And uh, uh, if this bores you kids, then I'm sorry. But if you've been through 7th or 8th grade English, you should not get bored. You should now be intellectually challenged to remember this for your next school year. We're going to talk grammar for a moment so we don't miss this. Um, I want to emphasize the word blessed. Um, does that, y'all can still see that. Is that cut off too much? There, thank you. Blessed. <clears throat> Paul uses the word blessed. And in Greek, if you're going to talk about something that's already happened, the past tense, Greek has two past tenses, not one. They've got two. One is just the past perfect, okay? We're not going to worry about that, so ignore it. Just remember there is one. And two, the one that I've put in more bold is called the aorist tense. I call it also the historical tense. But it's, it's, um, 
It's something, and, and what it means is, if you've got the Greek aorist, you mean this is something that's already happened in the past and it's over, it's finished, it's done. It's, it, the emphasis when you use that tense is that it has already occurred. Not something that occurred that's still kind of affecting us today, but something where you want to emphasize that it happened in the past. Okay? And that's what Paul does here. Paul says that God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us in the past. Something has happened in the past and we are blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. This is uh, uh, worth stopping for for a minute because as John Bassanio talked about this morning, there are elements within Christianity that teach that when you come into your relationship with God and you come into your relationship with Christ, there are stages of blessings. And the better you are, the more you're blessed with more spiritual gifts. And God reserves the really spiritual gifts for those who are really good. That's not the Christian doctrine that Paul taught. Paul says, when you are in relationship with God, the blessings have already been given to you. They are there. You may not walk in them or you may not realize them, but you've got the blessings in Jesus Christ. Every spiritual blessing, it's already come. Now, Paul moves from there into something that's caused Christianity great problems. In Judaism, I don't think it's that big of an issue because the Jewish mentality has grown up with the idea that God told Abraham from the beginning, I'm choosing you, and you and your offspring are my chosen people. Okay? But in Christian circles that don't have Jewish heritage, there has been a strong fuss over what we call the issue of predestination. Did God choose us and pick us out? Or do we make the choice? Right? Well, this is a passage that's caused Christians to argue about that uh, for quite a bit. Paul says that God chose us in him before the creation of the world. And then he says he predestined us. And this has been something that, that has provoked a lot of thought. And I love to talk about this subject. And I have these incredible ideas about predestination and free choice that I would love to share with y'all. But not today. <laughs> Because today we're studying Ephesians, and frankly, Paul's not writing to do the Christian dialogue that we'd like to have. Paul's writing for another reason. So I want us to understand what Paul's writing first and foremost, and then anybody wants to engage in a discussion of predestination, as soon as we get done with the trial, uh, we can have a big party and we can do it. Um, but... Let's look first at what Paul's saying because I want us to all walk away with this today. I want all of us to walk away with this. God has chosen us. See, Paul says us because he's including himself in this. God chose us in him before the creation of the world. Doesn't end there. See the three dots? He chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. Paul's point Paul's making is God didn't choose his body just to go out there and just to be arrogant or to go out there and be haughty or to go out there and be mean or to go out there and be sinful or to go out there. God chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. He predestined us 
to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. Now, the question should become to any of us who are honest, how do we become holy and blameless? I would love to tell you that I am holy and blameless because I quit sinning. I just woke up the other day and decided, I think I'm going to be holy and blameless. And so I've just quit sinning. I haven't sinned in, I think I got my uh, five-year chip at uh, Sinners Anonymous last week. And uh, uh, I, don't, I don't sin anymore. It's a wonderful thing. I recommend it. Oh, to be holy and blameless. Becky comes to me and says, I can't believe you did this. And I'm able to look at her and say, I didn't. I'm holy and blameless. <laughs> Blame someone else. I'll bet it was Gracie. How are we holy and blameless? We're not holy and blameless by how good we live. I can match y'all sin for sin. We're holy and blameless by the grace of God because Jesus Christ has paid the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Jesus Christ has, has said, I will take the responsibility for the sin and I will take the punishment for the sin. So my holiness and, blame, and, and blamelessness is not because I'm living a good life. It's because I've been redeemed. I've been bought back. Christ has repurchased my soul, my essence, who I am. I've not only been bought back, but I've been forgiven of my sins. See, this makes me sinless. This makes me holy. This makes me blameless because I've been redeemed and forgiven. And when you add those together, you get holy and blameless. So I'm not holy and blameless because I quit sinning. I'm holy and blameless in the eyes of God, in justice, in the court of God, because someone else took my place as a sinner and someone else died a death for me and someone else through their blood has restored my relationship with God. Now this is a mystery, Paul says. This is uh, something that nobody could figure out. This is locked behind a safe. But the mystery has been revealed how God has worked among mankind. If we go back to the beginning, Adam and Eve are made in the image of God and they're made to be in fellowship with God and God creates a wonderful garden and God puts them in the garden and they walk with God and God walks with them in the cool of the day and He talks to them. But man sins. And woman sins, and God says, the day you sin, the day you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. And the death is not just a, the starting of a physical death, but there was a spiritual death there. And so you have God and man made to be in harmony together, and woman, and yet there's sin that has separated them, and man is destined for death and separation from God. And the mystery has been, from the time God first prophesied that through the seed of woman would come one who would restore. That when God says to Abraham, through your offspring, all of the nations shall be blessed. When God says and, and focuses on that, that through David will come a king who will sit on the throne eternally. All of this is a mystery on how God is going to redeem mankind and bring mankind back into fellowship. And that mystery has now been revealed. God did His work to the praise of His glory 
through Jesus Christ. And it's like a light bulb goes off. And so Paul says, now we see the mystery. The mystery is now revealed how God has been working to bring us together back with him. And that's his teaching. So then this prompts Paul to pray. Paul says, so here's my prayer. I pray that God may give you, it's a wonderful prayer, the spirit of wisdom and revelation so you may know him better, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Paul doesn't just pray for wisdom, doesn't just pray for you to have wisdom, because you can have all the wisdom in the world, but if the wisdom doesn't plug into the revelation of who God is and what God's doing, it's really not useful. So Paul prays that you have wisdom, of wisdom, a spirit of wisdom and of revelation so you may know Him better. Let it be a wisdom that allows you greater intimacy with God. To know in the Greek and in the Hebrew, both, means to have intimacy with. So let it be, uh, grow in your intimacy with God. Get to, you know, be, be intimate with Him. Be close to Him. Understand Him. Then the eyes of your heart can be enlightened. And it's enlightened, Paul says, to the power that resurrected Jesus Christ. God's power is not limited. God's power exceeds the grave. God's power exceeds our crises. It exceeds our problems. And that's the power that we have access to. And Paul prays that in wisdom, the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened so they could see how God can work in their lives. Good? Good prayer? It's worth praying for uh, my kids, my wife, my family, my friends. All right, Paul then moves and he starts talking a little bit about the purpose of the church. And this is chapter 2. As Paul does this, there are three general views of mankind over the ages. Let's talk about the views and we'll see which one we think is biblical. One view is, is that man in general is just great. Peachy keen. Aren't we wonderful? Okay. Another view is, and, and this view actually got great traction in the 1800s in philosophical circles. World War I kind of dashed this view. And there were still a few philosophers who held on to it until World War II. And once the atrocities of World War II came out, it was pretty clear mankind wasn't just evolving into this better and better state that we had within ourselves depths of horror and, and, and that, that, that are beyond description. Okay. But some people still think that just man on their own, we're just a great thing. Other people say, no, whoops, okay, I did not do this right. We've got to go ahead and pop it through. Here are all three views. Second view is man is sick. Okay? We're not great, but we're sick. We need a doctor. We need some pills. We need bar horse to get us fixed. Okay. We're not great, but we're sick. Third view of man is we're dead. It's not a question of being great. It's not a question of being sick. We're dead. All right. Now, the third view is the biblical view. It's the biblical view in the Old Testament, in the Tanakh. It's the biblical view in, in Paul's writings. 
We were dead in our trespasses, he says. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. Okay? Mankind is, is not you know, in, a, in a state of sickness that needs a doctor. Mankind, through Adam and Eve and the death that came in, is dead. We're dead in sins and transgressions. And so the question is this. What happened, because Paul says, remember when you were dead? What happened to the dead people? What happens to us dead in our transgressions and sins? What do, we, what do dead people need? A new life. You're dead, you need a new life. We can also call that salvation or redemption. And so the point of the Christian message is, that mankind is dead, separated from God, alienated from God, but through Jesus Christ and His death on our behalf, we actually get the language used some in the New Testament is born again. I got a call last night from a lawyer friend of mine named Ed Hayes up in, you know Ed, up in uh, uh, New York. Uh, he's the one who calls me a born again. And he's even had me on his radio show. Now, we've got Mark Lanier. He's a lawyer down in Texas, and he's a born-again. I'd never heard that kind of a label used like that until I started hanging around Ed Hayes in New York. But there are a lot of people who, you know, what are you? You're a born-again. Okay. Well, that, that, that's one way of talking about it that's very biblical. That in fact, as Christians, we have recognized the death we're in and our sin and asked God to create in us a new life. That's not part of the old. And, and this is what happens. Paul says, by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works. There's no boasting. It's not that you were good enough. No Christian is good enough to get God's merit, and I mean God's love. God loves you, period in all of your grossness and in all of your sickness and in all of your death. And God comes and says, I will take your sin and your death on your behalf and I'll give you a new life. And so it's a born-again experience to accept the death of Christ on your behalf and say, thank you, God. Now, the neat thing to me in this passage, though, Paul's not talking to try and convert the Ephesians. These are already converted people. Paul's driving home a point. He says, do you know why God saved you? Do you know why he gave you a new life? He gave it to you for a reason. That's a working man. He gave it to you so that you would do good works. See, God has prepared good works for you before he even called you. This goes back to chapter 1. He doesn't just call you to become a Christian. He calls you to be holy and blameless in Jesus, to be adopted as sons, and to do good works that He's prepared beforehand for you to walk in them. Now, the church that's receiving this letter, Paul says, let's go back and make sure we've tied up our loose ends because you've got the Jewish portion of the church. And what's the other portion? It's not the Christian portion. This is not, oh gee, there are the Jewish ones and then there are the Christian ones. That's not it. It's, um, it's not Jewish versus Christian. We've got to move it. It's Jewish versus pagans. See, there were Jewish believers in God before they became Christians. And then there were a bunch of pagan Gentiles. 
And the church is made up of both. So the pagans and the, the, you know, at least the Jews had an understanding of, of God. They could say there's Shema, Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And the pagans, they're just out there in pagan sinfulness, worshiping who knows Zeus what and Apollos this and Aphrodite that. And Paul says, that was your old life. Jews, he says, who are in the church have understood how God has been working through Jesus. The pagans have come a long way because they've figured out who God is. And then they figured out what God was doing. And what God has done is destroyed barriers. But He's destroyed barriers not only between God and man, He's destroyed the barrier between the Jews and the pagans. This is the mysterion. That's the Greek word, mysterion, that Paul writes about. What's our English word we get from it? Mystery. This is a revealed mystery, Paul says. Paul says, for ages no one knew how God was going to restore the relationship between him and man. Oh, God had put a system in place through Moses and the Torah and, and, and the Sinaitic Covenant where, where there were priests and there were sacrifices and, and there was a temple and there were different roles for different people. But all of that was a foreshadowing of a culminative, a, a, a final sacrifice in Jesus Christ that was the, the redemption between God and man. And, and this mystery has now been revealed, but the mystery that, the, 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 that as detectives they could see, the mystery is one of unity, not just of God and man, but unity also of Jew and Gentile. Okay? So he wants the church to understand. And, and, and that God could do this is incredible. And the, the Christian worldview is a worldview that says... Not this is a really neat philosophy to live by that makes us feel good at night. But it's this is the truth. I mean, this is, I believe this is true. And I'm not an idiot. I may not be the brightest bulb in the light fixture, but I'm not an idiot. And I truly believe there is a God. And I truly believe He made human beings. And I truly believe we and our ancestors have sinned from Him. And I truly believe that sin separates me from God and that God had to redeem me out of love for me to have a relationship with Him. I really believe it. I really believe when my life is over, I will live eternally with God. God has done this and it is phenomenal to think about. Okay? I mean, have you ever done anything bigger in your life than what God has done? If what I'm telling you is true, is true. The God who created the world made you and me and knew beforehand what our lives would be and planned for us eternally, even to the point of sacrificing Himself for on our behalf and has called us and brought us together. Do you know anybody who's done anything better than that? Do you know? I, 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 have you watched the Strongest Man competition on TV? I've watched it. And they do some incredible things. But they're not that incredible. They haven't done anything that good yet. My grandmother turns 88 in a couple of weeks. 
She's lived twice of my lifetimes. But I've talked to her, and she says in 88 years, she's never seen anybody do anything better than that. This is the God that Paul ends this passage here saying, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask, than all we imagine, according to his power, be glory in the church and in Jesus forever and ever. Amen. I mean, that's a pretty powerful God, isn't it? We've got a God who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power. Now, Paul is about to get into some practical things. But before he gets into the practical things, he spends three chapters telling us what's going on here. Now, I want to make it personal to you. Because we had how many prayer requests? We had like, Howard, I don't know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. More than we've had in a long time. We've got a lot of people in class today. And I know just in my own world what I have going on. I had, uh, Becky and I had a friend growing up. Um, uh, his name was Mr. Marple, Professor Marple. And Professor Marple taught music at Texas Tech, music education at Texas Tech University. And I used to have a lot of religious discussions with him. And, and, and he was an interesting fellow. He went to church. He wrote uh, hymns for his church to sing. He was a music director at church. But Professor Marple would tell me when we'd have religious discussions, he'd say, you know, I figure God probably knows my name, but that's probably about it. He's got like a lot of stuff going on. And I'm not, you know, Leone tells me the other day, I was at, somebody in here class was praying for me. He says, man, don't you figure they got other things they need to be praying for? You only got so many prayers. I said, no, I think we were, I was telling Kelly, telling Bob to tell Kelly to pray for us. He says, you know, you already got a lot of people praying for you. Why are you going to use up her prayers? I said, I said, I need it. He says, so you think there's just like this unlimited prayer supply? And I says, yeah, you know, it just kind of breeds. I think the more you do, the more you get. And da, 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 da. He says, okay, well, that's not the way I've thought of it. So I'm going to chew on it for a while. But this is my belief. My belief is, my belief is, is that God not only knows what's going on in my life and the number of hairs on my head, but God knows everything that's going on in yours. He knows what's happening with your family. He knows what you're worried about. He knows when you're worried about money. He knows when you're worried about your children. He knows when you're worried about your marriage. He knows when you're worried about your job. He knows when you're worried about the weather. We're walking through the house this morning. Sarah, our six-year-old now. She's six, isn't she? Okay. I lose track. I have four daughters. She's the young one. I knew that. Um, Sarah, our six-year-old, says to me, okay, I understand God says he's not going to flood the world again, but do you think he can flood our house? And I said, well, I wouldn't worry about it. And she says, well, it's not that I'm really worried, but I live in the upstairs part and you all live in the downstairs part. And I'm wondering if he floods it, how high it would go. <laughs> Everybody's got their set of worries, wherever they may be. 
But I want to tell you something. We have a God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to His power. So, points for home. Number one, we have been blessed. It's happened. We have been blessed in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing. It's happened. And it's a wonderful event in history that cannot be undone. And no one can ever come to you and take your salvation away. No one can come to you and say, oh yes, you've been saved, but I'm going to snatch that from you. Because it's already been given to you. It's happened in history. It's a fate accompli. It is finished. It is done. And you have been blessed in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing, you have the harmony with God that you were made to have. Number two, we've been chosen. I don't care where you land on the predestination issue. I want to tell you something. Scripture says you were chosen by God. You were chosen to be blameless. You were chosen to be holy. You were chosen to be adopted as sons. I'm not Jewish. I'm not part of Israel. I'm not part of the chosen people like that. But the Bible says I've been grafted into the vine through Jesus Christ. And I am God's chosen one. Through Jesus Christ, but I'm not just chosen to walk around and tell everybody, hey, I've been picked. You know, when you pick kids for a ball team, you remember when we were growing up and you'd pick kids for a team and you'd always want to be picked first or second or anything but last? And sometimes we all got picked last. Some more than others, Lewis. <laughs> But you're not picked just to be on the team. You're picked to play. God didn't choose you just to pick you. He chose you for a reason. So he's got your name on his playbook. And he's got plans for you. And that's exciting. That's not a burden. That's exciting. God Almighty, who's able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask for or imagine, has picked each one of us by name, put our name down and said, I've got that person right where I want them to do right what I want them to do. Wow. Point three, we have a great salvation. It is wonderful. It is wonderful for me to get to tell you about my God and the relationship I have with Him through Jesus Christ. I do not have a relationship with God based on how good I am. I have one based upon His love for me and His provision for me. And that's a great salvation. God is at work in us and through us. He's at work in each one of us to make us who we need to be. To help us get through the emotional traumas that we have from our past. To help us get through all of the baggage that we've inherited. Not just from families, but from life itself and from circumstances. I'm 44, and I can still see myself doing things that I'm doing because of things that happened when I was a 10 and 11 and 12. Lewis tells me all the time about people he sees in counseling who are in their 40s, who are in their 50s, who are still carrying the baggage that they had put on their doorstep when they were kids and teenagers. But that's not the end of my story. 
I see Terry and Lynette and my heart just grieves for y'all. But this week was not the end of your story. God is at work here. And we don't understand it and we don't know how, but we have the faithful promise and assurance that He is at work. And that somehow in the midst of the pain and the hurt and, and, and things that should not be the way that they are, God works through all of this to bring His ultimate purposes. The mystery has been revealed. For thousands of years, the question, the perplexing problem was how can man be united? How can all, you know, as God said to Abraham, through your offspring, all the nations shall be blessed. How do the Gentiles and the pagans and all of the peoples get blessed? Through the seed of Abraham, it's in Jesus Christ. And finally, God is able to do, and you can fill in the blank, because if He can do far immeasurably more than anything you can ask for or imagine, then just ask for and imagine anything, and He's able to do that, because He's able to do more than that. So you can fill in that blank any way you want. God's able to do that and more. You can't imagine something He can't do. You can't ask for something He can't do. Will He always do it? No, because He's got His plan at work. But trust me, it's not because He's short on power. We'll finish Ephesians next week. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for who you are and for the way you reach down and touch us individually where we are today. We honor you as our Lord and our God, as our faithful King. Through Jesus Christ, amen.